Hi everyone, I'm Barak. Hi everyone, I'm Rahul and welcome to our knowledge video about bradycardias. Um, so what we're going to, this, this video will have lots of ECGs in it, unsurprisingly. So if you're listening as a podcast, um, do tune in later uh, online to, to view the ECGs. Um, so what we'll start with, as we do with all our videos, is the definition. So bradycardia being a heart rate of less than 60 beats per minute. And there are different subtypes that are diagnosed on a 12-lead ECG or prolonged three-lead monitoring. And we won't go into extensive detail about each type, but rather we'll focus on the clinically relevant points and give ECG examples of each. So I'll hand over to you, Balrog, with your, with your ECGs. Um, Great, thanks very much, Rahul. Uh, so, everyone can see this. So, we're just going to go through uh, the different uh, bradycardias. Um, just more for peace of mind, because you do want to make sure you can spot uh, different types of uh, cardiac pathologies, essentially different types of heart block. Um, so, I'm just going to go through them uh, briefly. So, this is uh, the actual title slide. Just looking at it, this looks like sinus rhythm with complete a systole here but what's important here is that there's no p waves this isn't necessarily uh av nodal disease this is actually sinus node disease um, and that brings me nicely onto the first thing so sinus node disease now one colloquial thing people sometimes say uh, you might hear some of your consultants say sinus node disease will never or rarely i suppose you never say never in medicine will rarely kill you so pacing for sinus node disease is done on the basis of patient symptoms um, because it's not something that will uh, necessarily be fatal to patients, whereas uh, AV nodal disease will and can be. Um, so with sinus node disease, uh, the, this ECG is one of uh, a sinus pause and the duration of a pause is really important because that's what essentially gets you um, a pacemaker. So if your pause is over three seconds, remind each small square is 0.2 seconds. If your pause is over three seconds, uh, then that's an indication of pacing. Obviously with AF, because it is irregularly irregular and you get compensatory pauses, that threshold increases. So that's a nice five out of five um, piece of knowledge to know for your interview. So pacing, uh, for, pacing for pauses, uh, the threshold is increased in AF, so five seconds AF. Timing of the pause. Um, nocturnal pauses, um, you, overnight, naturally patients will be far more bradycardic um, relative to their daytime heart rate, and pauses are more common overnight. So asymptomatic pauses overnight aren't necessarily what we would pace for. So these are daytime uh, wake pauses that I'm talking about. And the key, as I talked, said earlier, is symptoms. Symptoms are the absolute key uh, to determining whether you pace for isolated sinus node disease. Uh, the other type of sinus node disease um, is failure to mount a fair chronotropic response, i.e. tachycardia, when one needs to. And you sometimes see that with elderly patients. Um, and it's a weak indication for pacing, but you do sometimes do it. So going on to the uh, pathology, uh, the other pathologies now, so the level of the AV node. So first degree heart block, First degree heart block is quite simply a PR interval of over 200 milliseconds, which is five small squares. So counting from the start of the P to the start of the R. So this is isolated first degree heart block. 
because uh, you can see a PR interval here of probably about six to seven small squares. So that's 220 to 40 milliseconds. Now Mobit's one. Hopefully by now, most people are fairly happy looking at this, but if you're ever confused or nervous in the middle of your interview scenario, just go back to a few things. So is the, is the PR interval static or changing? If it's changing, it can only really be Mobit's one or complete heartbreak. So you, by looking at the PR interval um, and, how, and how it differs, you've already got your, your diagnosis to an extent. Uh, so this is a changing PR interval. If you look here compared to here, for example, uh, so therefore this is either complete heart block or Mobis 1, and the fact that it's irregular means that this isn't complete heart block as a very quick rule of thumb. And that's where uh, I first got taught how to look at ECGs. Then afterwards you can go back and confirm, well, if this is Mobis 1, has the patient got a prolonging PR interval? So yes, prolonging, 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 dropped, and same again. Um, so this is Mobitz one with an irregular R interval because of the dropped um, QRS complexes. Mobitz one is not something we often uh, pace for in isolation unless they're incredibly uh, symptomatic. And actually, um, you know, Mobitz one is actually a physiological response. Uh, most patients will uh, wank you back, which is the other name for Mobitz one, will actually wank you back at a particular heart rate. That's the natural response of the AV node. Mobitz 2, this is pathological and we this gets you a pacemaker regardless um, of whether it's nocturnal or daytime uh, or symptoms or no symptoms because of the risk of progressing to third degree heart block. Um, so Mobitz 2, what you want to be looking at, as I said before, if you're ever worried in, in an interview, look at the PR interval. This patient has a static PR interval. It doesn't change at all. And here you have isolated, dropped uh, QRS complexes. So this is Mobitz 2. The other form of Mobitz 2 that you might get is 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 heart block. So you get two P waves, then a QRS. Then you might get two P waves, then a QRS. And that's just another form of Mobitz 2. Either way, if you've got a static PR interval, uh, a static PR interval and dropped uh, QRS complexes, that's Mobitz 2. Um, I.e. you don't get one after every P wave. That's maybe it's two and needs pacing. Finally, complete heart block. This will here have a changing uh, PR interval, uh, which this does. So the PR interval is definitely not static. If you look here, um, and this patient has a completely regular, uh, you can count it out your own time, but don't have a word for it, uh, regular R interval. So this is complete heart block uh, with a fairly the other thing to talk about when you're talking about complete heart block is the nature of the escape rhythm. So this patient has a narrow, uh, narrow escape at a fair, a fair rate. Uh, so this is a rate of about 45 beats per minute, by the of things, uh, with a narrow escape rhythm. So actually a relatively safe escape rhythm. So this is someone that you wouldn't necessarily need to put a temporary pacing wire, or expect to be putting a temporary pacing wire in overnight. And the patient may not necessarily, necessarily be that compromised. Uh, so when you're describing complete heart block, talk about the fact that it's complete heart block and then about the escape rhythm, its rate and how broad the QRS complex is. The narrow it is means it's coming up, coming from the escape rhythm is coming, coming from higher up in the ventricles and is using more of the uh, 
conduction system, i.e. the, the uh, right and left bundle branches. Um, so it's just a lot safer. Um, this is one just to always be aware of, uh, <laughs> both clinically and uh, in your interviews. Uh, this is AF, because there's no clear P wave activity. But importantly, you do have regular QRS complexes. So if you ever have AF with regular QRS complexes, you should be very, very concerned that this is complete heart block. Uh, this is complete heart block. <laughs> um, and that's one that often catches people out, so do be aware of that. Um, and then, well, should I just talk about the uh, bundle branch rocks as well? As well? Um, so bundle branch rock, again, hopefully not too difficult. People get very hung up on the William and Mara. Hopefully by now you should have moved on beyond that. If it's broad and negative in V1, it's left bundle branch rock. If it's broad and positive in V1, it's right bundle branch rock. They don't necessarily have to have that rabbit ears or William and Mara uh, thing, although some, sometimes they do. Um, so broad and negative in V1, this is left bundle branch block. And don't forget, you do get these changes in V5, V6. So you get this, what looks like ST depression, but this is not ischemic. This is classical of left bundle branch block. So you often, as a cardiology will get referred patients, say, oh, they've got lateral ischemia. This isn't lateral ischemia. This is the pattern that you would get with uh, left bundle branch block, or sometimes a downsloping uh, T wave here, rather like this, but from the isoelectric line. So that's not T wave inversion. That's classical uh, left bundle when this patient is in AF. And this is the converse, so right bundle, it's just the opposite. So it's broad and positive in, uh, uh, actually this, this, this is right bundle, but isn't, because it's got a classical pattern, but it actually isn't hugely positive in V1. The reason it's a uh, right bundle is because that is actually the, also the opposite uh, of the T wave pattern that you see in left bundle. So in left bundle, you see this uh, cube inversion on, in V5, V6, and here you see it in V1 and V2. So this is, uh, that's another clue for this being classical right bundle. Um, and that's right bundle. What's the final one I wanted to show? Oh yeah, it's trifecular block. Uh, so trifecular, well, this is often called trifecular block and it's the presence of first degree heart block, which you can see here with a PR interval over five small squares. Um, with right bundle branch block, we see here by a broad and positive QRS complex in, in V1 and left axis deviation, which you can see here is negative two and three. Uh, and I searched in AVR saying the axis is probably around two o'clock. So this is left axis deviation, right bundle branch block and first degree heart block. And the presence of those, so right bundle branch block and left axis deviation indicates that you've blocked your right bundle and your left anterior fascicle. Uh, so that's bifascicular block. The fact that you also have first degree heart block is this means that this is something that's often called trifascicular block, although I do appreciate the true trifascicular block is a block of all three fascicles below the AV node. So the way I probably describe this is this patient has bifascicular block as evidenced by right bundle branch block and left axis deviation and significant first degree heart block. So first, first degree heart block and bifascicular block, which is sometimes known as trifascicular block uh, and if this patient has significant symptoms, would be an indication for pacing. Uh, you can monitor them with a halter monitor, but 
uh, realistically, tricyclic block, this type of tricyclic blocking symptoms uh, gets you a pacemaker. Um, so yeah, those are just a rundown of some ECGs and uh, when, when you would pace uh, these scenarios. Uh, back to you, Raul. Fantastic, thank you. Um, and yeah, I think that that last point's an interesting one. It's that triversicular block being a bit of a misnomer um, in terms of how it's used in medicine. Um, and I guess the point for the interview being, don't overcomplicate it. And as, as Barricus says, just describe the ECG um, and you can't go wrong, um, whatever, whatever happens. So next we'll talk about the acute treatments of bradycardias um, and this is certainly a scenario that could come up in the interview um, and what i'd advise is that just looking at the als algorithm and, and putting it to memory um, now when describing your approach to this um, with any significant arrhythmia typically the best thing to do is actually to say that you'd you'd assess the patient in, a, in an abcd format um, looking for evidence essentially of shock syncope ischemia or heart failure where which would risk stratify how quickly you need to act um, and that would all that often be a good opening gambit for um, approaching any arrhythmia um, so following doing that you'd want to also look for recg evidence of a high risk of asystole i.e a recent asystolic episode if they're on a cardiac monitor and you'd want them on a cardiac monitor a ventricular pause of greater than three seconds or evidence of uh, second degree Mobitz type two or, or third degree, i.e. complete heart block. Uh, and this is important because it will affect how you treat the patient. Um, you'd also want to, uh, in your assessment, identify any reversible causes that could be treated, such as a drug overdose or electrolyte abnormalities. And if none of the above is present, you could observe the patient by placing them on a cardiac monitor. If the, the, what was described is present, one would need to potentially pace the patient uh, or initiate an interim treatment measure if you're buying time to a more permanent solution or it's felt that there's an underlying cause that will go away and so more secure pain wouldn't be needed um, in the longer term. Now, what are those interim measures that you could uh, use. So atropine being the first one, a 500 microgram dose repeated to a maximum of three milligrams, a muscarinic antagonist that acts against the parasympathetic nervous system. And just to note, it has a half-life of between two to five hours. And so that will affect when you would need to think about or how long sorry, your, your treatment would last for when you need to think about further treatments. Further treatments could also include an isoprenaline or an adrenaline infusion. And then the next step would be temporary pacing, which could be uh, via the transvenous route or transcutaneous route. And we'll talk a bit about the practicalities of, of both. Just, just to note for transvenous pacing, this is essentially a pacing wire inserted into the RV to allow ventricular pacing via a venous catheter, typically via the femoral vein. Um, now, transcutaneous pacing, it may be that you'd have to logistically describe how you go about doing it. So an awareness of that is useful. So how would you do it? You'd have the defibrillation pads on and monitoring electrodes as well, a three lead monitor onto the defibrillation machine. You'd want to organize for the patient to be sedated. Um, and that mean that you may call anesthetic help using your MDT. Um, 
And the next step would be to choose the pacing mode on the defibrillation machine. So you have an on-demand mode and a fixed pacing mode. Uh, um, and the on-demand mode basically paces when no QRS complex is detected. But the, the issue with that is that sometimes movement artifacts can look like a QRS and then no pacing occurs. So the safer one typically is the fixed pacing rate. You then would select the pacing rate. So for example, 60 beats per minute. And once you've selected that um, rate to pace, uh, you would uh, increase the current that's delivered um, and to observe pacing spikes and then look for capture QRS complexes. And typically in terms of the current that you'd need, typically people need around 50 to 100 milliamps of energy. Uh, and once the capture is seen, you would feel for, you would assess, sorry, for mechanical capture. So do they have a pulse? Um, and it may be that you come across a scenario where you don't see any capture on the maximum settings. Um, and then what do you think then? Well, things that you can think about are, is it that the myocardium is actually non-viable? And in your assessment, you'd also perform a transthoracic echo. Um, it could also be that there are electrolyte abnormalities um, and uh, you'd want to correct those. Uh, and the last thing is you could always just try and change the pad position. Um, so that's your, uh, they are the key aspects that essentially follow the ALS algorithm of how you treat a bradycardia. And just a good in-depth knowledge of those is something that you should have for the interview. Um, before we move on, Barak, anything to, to add? Um, no, I think just, so just to put it into context, I suppose, is, Atropine is often given by LAS before the patient even gets to hospital. I think by the time they're under the under your care as a cardiology, you should talk about giving atropine because it's in the algorithm. But uh, the next thing that's very commonly used if a patient's um, slightly compromised, but you don't want to necessarily have to think about uh, pacing either transcutaneous or transvenous, is an isoprenaline infusion. And you can start at uh, a rate of one and go up sequentially. Um, to, to, to see an improvement. Um, and that is typically what's tried, what's often used to try and hold patients, especially in the overnight setting. And that's when, and if that starts to fail, then you start thinking, realistically transcutaneous is quite a pain for the patients, um, pain for you metaphorically and pain for them physically. Um, so you often, I don't, I haven't often seen transcutaneous pacing used and quite often you go straight through it, putting a temporary pacing wire overnight, which as Rule said, is from the uh, via the femoral um, vein and you uh, float, a, float a wire up. There's one actually with a, a floating balloon. So once it goes a, a floating balloon, you inflate it and actually goes across the tricuspid valve into the right biventricle uh, and sits there. So um, yeah, I think that's that's just some uh, some context to it. And also the point about electro electrolyte abnormalities and reversible things, very common things with bugbear all cardiologists patients being on uh, calcium channel blocker and a beta blocker at the same time, so rapamil and bisoprolol, uh, look out for things like that. And I think if you've got anyone who's bradycardic, there's no real excuse, or anyone who's unwell really, there's no excuse not to do a VBG, which should pick up most um, obvious electrolyte abnormalities um, until you wait for the lab electrolytes to come back. So those two things, just two things to mention. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Um, 
So next we'll talk about indications for permanent pacing in bradycardia. And there are a lot of indications and we'll run through some of the common ones to be aware of. Um, so we'll start off with sinus disease. So in, in sinus bradycardia causing symptoms where no reversible cause has been found and the symptoms are clearly attributed to the bradycardia pacemaker uh, can be considered and also in sinus nose node disease um, such as a kind of tachybrady syndrome resulting in clear symptoms um, a pacemaker can be indicated as Barrick discussed in second degree Mobitz type 2 block or third degree heart block irrespective of symptoms a pacemaker would be indicated um, going back to the sinus disease if you have significant pauses so six seconds at night three seconds in the day irrespective of symptoms that would be an indication. Um, patients in permanent AF with paroxysmal or permanent AV block where one can't essentially give rate control medications, um, a pacemaker would be indicated. Um, and also, as Barrick mentioned, bifascicular or trifascicular block with clear symptoms. Um, and kind of trifascicular block, we mean the, the misnomer trifascicular block. Um, so there are certain indications for a permanent pacemaker. Um, Barrett, why don't you talk us through how you'd consent someone for a pacemaker? Sure. Um, the, the only thing I'd say before thinking about pacemaker, I think a really good candidate would talk about the fact that if someone's going to have a pacemaker and is going to be ventricularly pacing very often, i.e. you're pacing, they've got Mobius 2 or complete heart block, um, then should it be a patient that we need to consider a CRTP instead right. of a pacemaker. So a really good candidate would say, if they're going to be ventricularly pacing very often, um, I want to make sure that I have a good look at a transthoracic echo beforehand, um, because that might guide my uh, choice of device, um, because he may, the patient may benefit from a conduction system pacing or CRTP. Uh, so that's just something to bear in mind. Uh, Five out of five. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like consenting for a pacemaker. So again, uh, one of the very standard procedures we do in cardiology and all candidates should be aware of a pacemaker. So a pacemaker, um, I would first of all, tell in layman terms to the patient what a pacemaker is. Uh, so essentially it's a device that goes uh, under, the, under the left clavicle, underneath the skin. Um, it's about this big. Uh, and it's a device with wires that go into the heart that will take over the electrical function of the heart when needed. So it will allow your heart to do its, uh, to use its own conduction system, but when it fails, the pacemaker will be in the backup um, and it will deliver an electrical impulse, uh, which will help the heart to beat at the right time. Um, and then in terms of the procedure, it's a procedure that's uh, done under local. Um, we don't often use sedation unless the patient's very agitated. Um, so done under local anaesthetic, um, and we would uh, done under local anaesthetic, and the procedure takes about, say, 45 minutes to an hour, um, and the patient's awake for the procedure, and the relative risks are, as always, bleeding, infection um, uh, around the wound site, and vascular complications as we access uh, the vessels that we need to get to to get down to the heart and the problems of the heart itself. So uh, you can cause um, a hole, hole in the heart, you can cause problems with the valves and you can cause um, damage to the lungs as well. And you give a 
a nuclear risk of about less than 1% for any of those complications. Um, and so after and then you talk about, I suppose, the aftercare for a pacemaker, they'll have a bandage on. Uh, it's very important to not get it wet. And it's very, very important. And the worst thing that can happen to a pacemaker is it getting infected. I think as a candidate, if you can show that you're aware of that, uh, the importance of infection control uh, for pacemaker implantation and post-pacemaker care, that's very good. Um, so importance of not getting it wet and not, uh, not uh, tell the patient not to actually fiddle with the wound at all um, to make sure you keep it as sterile as possible. And that's what, we have, what I talk about when consenting for a pacemaker. Yeah, nice, nice. And I think what I like there is you, you kept it quite simple. You didn't go um, overboard, you know, layman terms. That, that's the key really, isn't it? When, when describing, when consenting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so that brings an end to our knowledge video on bradycardia. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and we're going to, uh, there will be an associated video uh, working through a clinical scenario that you can have a look at. Thanks so much.